Some praise for the choir this morning. Thank you. Would you join me in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2? The Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And I want to read verses 8 through 17. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. I'm reading from the NIV version this morning. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountains, and bouncing over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands behind our wall gazing through the windows, peeping through the latest. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, and the rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come, and the cooing of the doves is heard in our land fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. My dove in the clefts of the rocks, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Our purpose is skip verse 15. My lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills of the mountain. Amen. You may be seated. In his classic text, The Soul of Black Folk, W.E.B. Du Bois raises as the premise of his theses the line that says that in the 20th century, the primary concern of human existence will be the color line. He contends that the problem that America will consistently wrestle with is the idea of color. He proceeds to unveil what we now call the Divorcean double consciousness. His highly suggested theory that only the person of African descent who lives in America has to see his or her life through two sets of lenses, one set being an American and the other set being an African. He concludes in that manner because he argues from the premise that the entire institution of slavery left the African both physically and psychologically ruined. And the ruins, yet although slavery now, 153 years later, ending in 1865, I believe, although it's over, yet we still suffer long term from the residue of which that level of human oppression and assault on the human psyche still affects us in the 21st century. I liken that to the idea of the narrative here in the second chapter of Song of Solomon, because you remember when we read in the first chapter, there is a critical aspect that this young lady suffers from that we still suffer from as a people in America. 
and verse 6 highlights in chapter 1 that she had an identity issue, an identity crisis. She struggled with the fact that her skin had been darkened by the sun to which she labored under. And as a result, her own family members ostracized, criticized, and at a level of oppression relegated her to a servitude position because her skin had been darkened. She needed someone to come and liberate her to bring her out from that dark mode of oppression because of the darkness of her skin. She had trouble understanding the identity of who she was and it took an outsider, yet someone who loved her, to help her come to the realization that her skin color really is only a testament to her strength. Du Bois continues in his analysis of those of African descent that looking through life in those double lens, we often mesmerize those who look on because they can't understand how with so much rejection and so much oppression and so much purposeful systemic discrimination, yet there is an innate ability within us to use his words, although our footsteps are dogged, there is yet a dog instinct in us to keep on fighting. We never give up the fight. Although it may look like we may lose, we never give up the fight because there is something within us that causes us to constantly fight and push ahead regardless of how oppressed we might find ourselves. When I read the story and getting prepared for this morning, I, I came across a text which I've had for a couple of days and I just decided to take a look into it. And it's a book entitled The Concept of Self, a Self, a Study of Black Identity and Self-Esteem, written by Richard Allen. And Allen makes a very interesting observation in helping us understand why identity is such a critical piece of our psyche. And I saw why in this text, the identity of this woman was revived and was re reinvigorated with life when the lover spoke unto her and she was called to respond to the words of the lover. He says, I quote, that the slave system was both psychological and physical. The slaves were taught discipline, were impressed again and again with the idea of their own inferiority to know your place. To see blackness as a sign of subordination, to be awed by the power of the master, to merge their interests with the interests of the masters, destroying their own. To accomplish this, there was a discipline of hard labor, the breakup of the slave family, the luring effects of religion, which sometimes had to greatly or had to lead to great mischief, as one slave owner, owner reported, and the creation of a disunity among the slaves, watch this, by separating them into the field slaves and more privileged house slaves, and finally the power of the law and the immediate power of the overseer to invoke whipping, burning, mutilations, and death. Now that sounds like a lot, you may not see that, but let me give you a brief, quick analysis and a very short introduction by way of what this text really says. So you're in slavery, I still gotta find a way to keep you subjected and to let you know that your identity doesn't count. So what I then do is you manage to slip into what we call reconstruction for at least 10 years and there's a discovery that in reconstructing your mindset 
that you began to recognize what your identity was, that you were not only created in the image of God, but you realized that you had the ability and you were just as equal as anyone else. So since I recognized that there was fruit that was bad from the reconstruction, I had to go back and recreate slavery by not physically in bondaging you, but now I must mentally oppress you. And so what I did was introduce what was called Jim Crow. And when I gave Jim Crow laws, I made sure that I could not put you back into chains and I could not whip you. So I put laws in place that would prohibit you from moving henceforth and to and fro. I enforced black codes and blue laws to make sure that you weren't able to move about and be free as you thought that the emancipation gave you. I continue to splinter your family. I continue to splinter you from your body and mind so that you would not catch that they work in unison in your African historical concept. I tried to help you realize that you could not exercise the mental strength that you have and I did that by cutting off your history. I did not want you to know where you came from or to remember from which you have come and that reiterated in the words of Malcolm X who constantly tells us you can't ever fight and be liberated until you understand the history from whence you have come. So he reminded us as well as Richard Allen that I purposely says the oppressor made sure that your history was cut off not just from you but from the history book so that when you began to learn you would not learn the lineage of your African culture, but you would only know the lineage of European westernization. I made sure that when we moved from Jim Crow that we moved into a more restrictive segregation mode. So even when Plessy versus Ferguson suggested that you could be separate but equal, yet I made sure that in the enforcement of the Brown versus Board of Education that you would not still see freedom until you had to realize you must continuously fight again. And we had to fight, remember, in 1954, although the law was passed that segregation was unconstitutional, it was not until 1967 and 68 that we actually started having integration. They made sure that they took their time in instilling with us that although you won your case legally in the courts, Practically, you will not experience equality until we are ready for that to happen. Now watch this now. This young lady in the text, chapter 1, experienced almost every single thing that we walked through. What happened was they relegated her to the field. They made her feel less than. They made her feel that she was inferior because of the darkness of her skin. And yet... When her lover came, who became her savior, Solomon, and spoke the word of life unto her, what changed her life was the voice that came from the lover himself. I told him this morning that that voice was active. When it spoke, it meant something. It brought life. It made her alive. It was not only active, but it was alive because when it spoke, it infused life into her. It was adaptable because it met her in the field where she was. And wherever she was, that voice would have followed and found her. It was allegorical because it painted a picture before her in the beautiness of her mind that she was able to use her creativity and her imagination to help her understand that if she can see herself in the mode of freedom, it was going to come to pass. And it was not only allegorical, but it was acquitting. It was his very words that set her free. And you got to understand that when you think about what Jesus tells us in the Gospels, that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. If you have received the essence of those words, there's your shouting point right there. I would have shouted that when someone told me that when the Son has set me free, but nobody's got to tell me because I already know that the Son has set me free. And when I realize that I've been set free by the Son of God, there is a joy, there is a peace, there is an excitement that lives on the inside of me all because the 
voice of my lover has spoken and when he found me, he found me in a space that was unbecoming, that nobody else wanted to see me in, nobody else would come and check me out, nobody else would find out where I was, but that cannot be said of Jesus who traveled everywhere that you were, who made sure that wherever you were, he would find himself right there with you and when his voice says, come unto me, we responded by giving love and adoration and thank you God for not leaving me in the darkness and thank you Lord for not leaving me where I was and thank you God for not allowing the accuser of the brethren to constantly as he comes before the throne of God to try to allow my past to be a detriment and to keep me from the blessings of God but instead her lover came look at verse 10 of chapter 2 and began to speak words of life unto her and he said my darling come come out to where I am come don't stay where you are but come there's a suggestion that between verse 7 and verse 8 the scene the context have changed and as a result of that we are no longer in Solomon's court in Solomon's palace where there's luxury and comfortableness of life but now we are out in the field in the countryside where she lived and where she was from and there's a suspicion by those who study the text that something happened that caused her life to go in a different direction than what we find in chapter 1. When we come to the end of chapter 1, she's excited. She's overwhelmed that her life is being changed by the new man that has entered into her life. But something has caused her life to go in a different direction. And now she is a bit frustrated. She is a bit disappointed. She's a bit agonizing. She is bathing in the space of seclusion. And look at verse 8 and 9 again. She says that when she thinks about her lover, listen to what happens. She begins to see him in the vision. She begins to see him in her imagination. And she says, he is coming, leaping over the mountains. He is coming, bounding over the hills. In fact, he is moving, dotting in and out like a gazelle, like a young stag. He is running with power and with authority, allegorically, metaphorically. She is painting a picture for us in her mind that her lover, the man who came and spoke truth unto her and delivered her from her identity crisis, who now tells her that you don't have to look through two sets of lenses any longer, but see yourself only through the lens of who I am. The man, the lover in the text represents God in the person of Jesus. In other other words the text is trying to tell us don't look at yourself through the oppression of someone else's idea of your inferiority but see yourself in the liberated eyes of God who see you as a whole creation made in his own image and you don't have to be ashamed of the darkness of your skin you don't have to be ashamed of the kinkiness of your hair you don't have to be ashamed of the broadness of your nose or the wideness of your hips or the thickness of your thighs or the darkness of your faith you should rejoice by the fact that I have been created in the image of a God who loved me the way that it made me and God says to me that I want you to appreciate who you are because when I breathe my life into you I breathe the breath of life into you and you became a living soul and because I'm a living soul I can walk this earth with boldness and confidence and knowing that greater is he that lives on the inside of me than he that is in the world in other words when God occupied my life I heard his call and I responded with my life that's why I call this the power of call and response because in the African American tradition we are the ones who practice the call and response in the mode of worship. You notice that the preacher will say a word from the word of God and then he pauses to allow the congregation to respond to affirm the word of God. So the preacher says something enduring, something powerful, something that identifies with your soul and we respond amen. Preach on pastor. 
pastor. Talk about it, Reverend. Tell it like it is. We are responding because the call has went out and it is invigorous and it is exciting because it reminds us that the call is active, that the call is alive, that the call is adaptable, that the call has the ability to adjust where we are and to meet us where we are and the call can paint the picture and when that word goes out it identifies something on the inside of our soul that makes us respond with an affirm hallelujah or an affirm amen or an affirm thank you Lord or an affirm you got that right because there is something about the word and the voice that gives us assurance in the text watch what she says she says that her lover, she identifies his agility. Look what she says. He's hopping everywhere. He's jumping all around the place. Watch this. Just to get to me. Now remember I told you last week there's a sensual side of the text and then there's a, a sacred side of the text. I'm only going to give you the sacred side because I told you before, y'all can't handle the sensual side. So look what she said. In the agility of jumping around, she's telling us in very clear terms, he's going through all of that just to get to me in my secluded space. On the sacred side, watch this. The master jumped through all of the hoops that was necessary to get to you and I that he might redeem us from the dark space of seclusion that sin had relegated us unto. There it is right there in the text. His agility to jump through hoops to get to where she was. And watch this. When he got there, there's a wall that separated them. And yet, says the text, he peeped through the window to make sure he identified exactly where she was. Now, the text might suggest that here's the human aspect, and this is what I love about it. It gives me both the divine and human nature of Christ. In the human nature, he looks through the window so that he can identify the very spot that we are in. And gratefully, when he looked through that window of pain and that window of agony and that window of almost defeat, he didn't turn around and run away, but he got closer and closer to reassure us that he'd never leave us nor forsake us. There it is right there in verse 9 and verse 8. And she cries out to those who are listening. She says, listen, my lover is on the way. As if not only did she hear the voice, but she heard the voice from a distance. Let me go back to my ancestry because when they were out in the fields and they were looking at the darkness of the day and yet the sun was beating down upon them and someone starts singing an old spiritual, somebody would also look up and say, up above my head, I hear music in the air. There must be a God somewhere. In other words, this young lady was saying, I can't see him right now, but I hear the music up in the air that my lover is on the way to rescue. I just stopped by to tell somebody no matter where you find yourself this morning and no matter how dark the moment might be if you just take your ear and listen strong enough you can hear the voice of your lover the Lord Jesus Christ on his way wherever you are to rescue you and to bring you to a space of wholeness if you just listen I hear music up in the air Well, watch the text because it gets a little better. In verse 9, she says, my, my lover in his gazelle-like space and his young stag look, and he's looking and peeping through the window, but then look what she says in verse 10. But my lover calls me to do something that no one has done for me since he called me previously. He calls me to release. Look at verse 10 real close. She says, my lover says, come to me where I am. But watch what he says. Back to the identity issue. He calls her my darling. 
He says unto her, baby, wherever you are, don't worry about it. I'm here. Daddy is home. No matter what's going on, I'm here to deliver you. Look at the text. It says, come out. Arise. That's how I know that she was in a space of darkness. She had allowed herself to be reduced to a space of seclusion and darkness. But he shows up and says, arise. Get up from where you are. And that's what God came to tell somebody this morning. I don't care what your circumstance is. Is, and I don't care how dark it may look get up from where you are you might say Reverend I've fallen down I've sinned I've been disobedient I realize that but we've all fallen short of the glory of God but God tells us to get up from where you are the writer of Proverbs says if you fall seven times keep on getting back up because there's something about a second time I don't know about you but I don't have no more second time because I done been passed the second time and the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time and don't look at me like that don't hate on me don't, uh, don't kind of judge me I realize I'm not perfect yet I realize I'm not as holy as you are but I've fallen a whole lot of times but by his grace and his mercy I've gotten up every time and got back on the horse because I hear my lover calling me and telling me to arise And get away from that space for which you find yourself. There it is right there. Arise, identity, my darling and my beautiful one. See that identity? He is assuring her that once again, as he did back in chapter 1, you still my boo. I don't care how dark your life may have gotten. You still are the apple of my eye. And there it is, Jesus is trying to tell us in the text that no matter how dark your moment has become, you are still my child. But what, wait a minute, what does he mean? He says, release yourself. Release yourself. What do you mean, release yourself? Get out of that state of darkness and seclusion and come back to life. Come back and live again. Yes, live again because what I have done, I am life and I come to give you life that you have, might have life more abundantly. Don't go into seclusion. Don't hide yourself behind the wall. But come out. Look, look, look what he says to her. He says to her in verse uh, 15, I think it is, uh, 14, he says, My dove, you are hanging in the cliffs of the rocks. You are hiding in places on the mountainside. Show me your face and let me hear your lovely voice because it sounds sweet. Here's what he's saying. Just because you've had a hard week at work and just because your week have been turned upside down, don't stay home from church on Sunday, but come to worship and show me your face and let me hear your voice in praise and adoration. Because he's saying in the text, I want to see you. I want to see you face to face and there's something about when you come into the sacred space of worship that it changes your entire demeanor. So he says release yourself and I'm just here to tell you there are some prisons that you're not going to come out of until you actually take the key and unlock the door yourself. Nobody else is going, is going to get you out of it because God knows that when you have to fight your way out of some of your own prisons, you make sure that you never return back to that same prison again. So the first thing he tells her is, I, I, I'm calling you because I want you to release yourself. But watch this. He says in verse 11 and 12, not just release yourself, but I want you to relax. See, look at the text. Again, metaphorical language, allegorical, however you want to put it, he's painting the picture by using the nature to help her realize how life has really changed, that it's not as bad as you really think it is. Chill out. Look what he says. Look at, look, look, look at verse 11. See, the winter has passed. See, the winter symbolized the darkness or the coldness 
It symbolized the weather restrictiveness and the ice and the snow and that which makes you chill. And he's trying to suggest to her that there may have been some people around you who brought winter-like symptoms, but they moved on. And sometimes you have to wake people out. Sometimes you can simply throw them out. Sometimes you can simply cut them off. But it's something about waiting them out. Why I like this? Because I'm reminded what David says in the Psalm 23. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It, you ever thought about that? Why would he prepare the table in the presence of the enemy? He wants the enemy to recognize that as cold and as chilly as they might be, there is still a table of communion and a table of joy and a table of comfort right there in the presence of the enemy. And here's the good part. God says in contemporary language, I want your haters to see just how blessed you are. Ooh, that was a shouting point right there. You missed your point to shout. I want your haters. I want those who are critical. I want those who do nothing but criticize you to recognize how blessed you are in the presence of your enemy. So he says the winter is past. But watch this. He says the rains are over and they are gone. The rain symbolized, you should have saw enough last night, the pouring down. Now, on one hand, it's the outpouring of future, of life. Because as the rain hits the earth, it brings plenty of nourishment that the grass may grow and that the trees may grow. And if you read the text closely, they needed the rains lest the fruit on the vines would have never grown. So in other words, the writer is trying to tell us every now and then, you're going to have some rain to fall down. Did not Jesus tell us in this world you will have tribulation? You're going to have some dark days. You're going to have some tough time. You're going to have some uphill battles. You're going to have some lonely nights. You're going to have some difficult days where you cannot connect the dots. But the writer says the rain is going to pass. You know what he says? He says the rain is, it's not just over. Because you see, last night, yesterday when it rained, what was that, Friday? Could have been Friday night. Rain like, didn't it rain like crazy Friday night? Thursday, Thursday. Well, I thought the rain was over. And it came back yesterday. And then I get up this morning, and guess what? It's back again. But look at the text. The rain is not only over but it's gone and in preparing the table before the presence of your enemy he anoints your head with oil and your cup runneth over but you can't get an overflowing cup unless you got an abundance of rain falling down I'm just trying to tell you that he's telling her in your dark moment you have been supplied plenteous grace and plenteous mercy and plenteous power and plenteous authority and plenteous endurance to make it through the storm and somebody might be here today saying pastor I'm on my last leg I'm on my last moment of hope I'm in my last stage of power I'm here to tell you no you're not they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint although your cup might be empty you just stretch your hand out and symbolically say Lord send down the rain that my cup might run it over he's telling her relax relax because I got this thing I got this thing in my hand don't stress out over what you can't change don't accelerate the change color of your hair over situations that you cannot alter 
relax. That's what he said. Look what he says. He says, the winter is past, the rains are gone, and, and how do I know that I'm in a new life? Look what he says in verse 12. Flowers are beginning to grow, and the birds are beginning to sing. Watch this. If you look around, you can stop. I, I, I saw the strangest thing, and I knew it was not there Friday morning when I came out of the house. And when that rain came down, and when I came back, you know what I found in my yard? A grown mushroom. Just that quick. Just that. I knew it wasn't there. I knew it was not there. I'm, I'm pretty meticulous when I, when I come out, I look around because I, I just don't know what I might find. So I'm looking to see what might be there. It was no mushroom there. When I came back home, there was a mushroom. Just that fat. It's as if it just grew up so quickly. But what he's trying to tell us is if you look around, even in your darkest space, you can see shadows Images of life trying to spring up if you just relax. He said the flowers are starting to peep. Watch this. And if you sit there and put your ear to the ground, you can hear the birds singing. He says that's how I know you transition from the winter to the spring. He says I'm trying to tell you, baby girl, it's time for you to come out of that cocoon of darkness and come out into the life of where you are and celebrate the new of life relax he says in verse 13 the fig tree is starting to bring their early fruit and the blossoming of the vines is bringing forth its fragrance in other words the grapes aren't fully grown yet but, but I can smell the fragrance already beginning to develop you may not be yet walking in the fullness of your answered prayer, but if you start sniffing, you can already smell deliverance on the way. Just, just start smelling. Oh, I smell the scent. I, I smell it coming. Let me just give you a practical analogy. When I, when I, when I, when I hear I'm downstairs, but yet when I start sniffing and smell Miss Murphy is cooking something upstairs, I'm like, oh Lord, it's time for deliverance. I'm on my way up because I can smell. I don't have to be there to physically see that she's working. I can smell the results of her work. And I don't know about you, but I have never seen the Christ, but I can smell the results of his work in my life in the newness of my life in the repairing of my life in the restoring of my life and in the resurrection of my life relax but if that's not enough watch what he says he, he says in verse 14 I don't want you to only relax but rejoice Look what he says back in verse 14. He says, my, my dear, my dove, you, you're in the clefts of the rocks, but I want you to show me your face, and I want to hear your voice. I, I want you to rejoice, and I want to hear the praise from your throat. Because when I hear you rejoice, I then can see that you are praising me by way of an offering. So the writer of Hebrews says that we not only can bring an offering unto God uh, with what we call material things, but we also can bring an offering to God by way of praise. I can praise my way in an offering unto God in thanking him in adoration. Watch this, because this is why she's going to celebrate for removing my past. See, we're back to the identity thing. See, a part of her past was actually cycling to the point where it was beginning to restrict her and make her bound by what other people thought because they would always bring up her past, verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1. But watch this. When her lover came, he told her, your past don't mean anything to me. And I'm just so glad this morning that when my lover came, his name is Jesus, he took the past and put it under the blood. So that my past doesn't arise up in the now. 
And so now he says, whenever you begin to feel guilty about the past, start rejoicing about the way that he has freed you from your past. We're talking about identity. We're talking about identity. And I go back to what I initially said in reference to slavery. Somehow, if we begin to understand the importance of recognizing that in the word of God, there is a spirit of liberation that's intended to free us from the bondage of the past, but never forget from where we've come in reference to the past. But there has been a systematic order by way of reassuring in our mind that we will never allow the mentality or the characteristics of slavery to escape our mind. So we end up falling into the path of seeing ourselves less than. And that is where her lover seeks to deliver her from. Let me read another portion from Alan's text to give us an insight. Watch this. He says unto us, and again, uh, I quote, the widespread and well-nigh successful endeavor that has been maintained for some five to six centuries to erase African history from the general record is a fact which of itself should be quite conclusive to thinking and open minds, for it is logical and apparent that no such undertaking would ever have been carried out and at such length in order to obscure and to bury what is actually or of little no significance. Here's what he's saying. There is a reason why they don't want you to know your history because if you know from whom you have come, you might reach back and begin to endure by depending and by connecting to the power of ancestry. I wish I had time to take you through and show you how in African culture it is totally contrary or totally opposite, should I say, of what we have in Western culture. Western culture wants to teach us that if you start having any connection to the dead or afterlife, that you are somehow participating in a mode of idolatry. But that's not so. Let me tell you why. If you read the Bible, if it was not so, where we had a connection to the afterlife then tell me why was Saul trying to hook up with the witch of Endor and when he did go to pray come to find out Samuel came up and said brother don't call me I'm in paradise now I ain't about to come back to this place you call earth and the writer of Hebrews says even though they have died yet they are still speaking because ancestry wise People are afraid that if you connect to the lineage of your African culture that you might mess around and recognize you got power to endure and power to sustain and power to create and power to overcome and power to resist and power to carry out a revolution and that is what they do not want. Have you ever noticed that European always connect themselves to their culture? They're always talking about Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, Benjamin Franklin and the whole nine yards. I just want you to know they don't want you to talk about Ella Baker. They don't want you to talk about Denmark Vesey. They don't want you to talk about Nat Turner. They don't want you to talk about Sojourner Truth because they were power brokers of themselves and they had no issue with their identity. And here it is. Here it is in the text. He says, I want you to rejoice and I want you to hear. I want to hear your voice and in hearing your voice I want to celebrate because in worshiping and honoring me, there is something about in worship that reminds me of my answer. That's why the call and response is so powerful because it reminds me of the connection that we have when we come together in worship. I said this morning and I'll tell you, in the black church, there should never be a moment of silence when it comes to worship. Our adoption of Europeanism has allowed us in our education to become so much in church like docile that when we get here, someone has to remind us from whom all blessings flow. I just want to know, do I have any witnesses in the house that will testify? Nobody has to remind me from whom all blessings flow. I know that he woke me up this morning. I know that it started me on my way. I know that it keeps me every single day. And I realize if it had not been for the Lord on my side I know exactly where I would be 
let me bring this to a close. What sparked my final point of this rejoicing in verse 14 was the expectation of the response in verse 16 and 17. She responds. She has to respond. She thinks about her lover, and so she has to respond. She has to hear his voice, and she has to embrace his voice. But look, look, look what she says. She says, my lover, he is mine, and I am his. And we are so in love that I don't want him to leave me. Don't leave me until the day breaks. Now, remember I told you the sensual side and the sacred side? The sensual side, she's saying, is hang out with a sister until the morning comes because that's how good your love is. But the sacred side is whatever you do, God, don't leave me where I am. Which leads me to this final point. I'm responding to the call because of what's been said about me. Watch this. So Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln says, I want you to understand this one principle. This one principle is inferiority is an imposed disposition. You aren't born an inferior person. You aren't born thinking you are inferior to someone else's superiority. That's imposed ideology. Watch this. Abraham Lincoln. Everybody loves Abraham Lincoln in America. Watch this. Abraham Lincoln, your president, not mine, your president, past president. Look what he says. He says there is a physical difference between the white and the black races, which I believe will forever forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality and inasmuch as they cannot so live while they do remain together there must be the position of superior and inferior and I as much as any other man in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race that's your president not mine your past president. Now, you may not think that's important, and that's, that's what white supremacy does. That's, that's what white ideology does. It, it will so have you thinking that it's not an important issue, but that's a systemic ideology because that's spoken back in 1862. And here we are in 2018, and it still is being applied. Watch this. Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Your past president, not mine, Thomas Jefferson. Here's what he says. I advance it, concurring with Abraham. I advance it, therefore, as a suspicion only that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, are inferior to the whites in the endowment of both body and mind. Now, why is that critical? Remember, she had an issue with her identity, her body and her mind. And her lover came and set her free. And I am saying, here's the call. We are being called in 21st century America to respond to the suggestion that you know who you are, both in your physical lineage and in your prophetic lineage. So you better know who you are, not only ancestry, says Malcolm X, but also know who you are spiritually, says the Apostle Paul. For I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. In other words, Paul says, I know exactly who it is that I have rendered my life unto because he and I got a connection. This is what she says, I am his and his is mine. In other words, we are so in love that I can't do without him and he can't do without me. I'm done now. I'm so happy that I know that God loves me so much that no matter where I go, says the psalmist, he's right there. If I go up, he's there. If I go down, he's there. If I go out, he's there. If I go under, he's there. Because he loves me so much that he put his stamp of identity on me by converting me into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This woman tells us that when you hear the call, respond, because there's power in the call and response.
if we're willing to hear the voice of God. If we're willing to see ourselves as whole in a society that works over time to segregate, to, to make us feel like an inferior people. And that's the reason why I'll never stop proclaiming my identity and blackness of who I am. Because the very moment you stop doing that is the very conceding to the idea that there is someone who's superior over who you are. And there's a people who want to make sure that you never talk about who you are in terms of your heritage. Don't talk about that. Just remember you are an American. And that's where the boy says you can't live like that. As an African with African heritage, you are an African and American. And you have to see through both sets of lips, but that gives us a distinct advantage because I'm able to look at myself through my African heritage and I'm able to look at myself through my American connection and I realize because I'm a two-ness that's what the boy says, we are a two-ness person and by being a two-ness person, I got more power than them who can only see through one set of lenses, I can see light through different sets of lenses I see light and they see darkness, it's the reason why I believe when all hell breaks loose and life goes away, they commit suicide. We just keep on chopping along because we realize this ain't nothing new. We live on the basement floor and you can't commit suicide on the basement floor. You can't jump out of the window because you're too close to the ground. We realize we know how to push on no matter how dark the cloud, no matter how much rain comes down, no matter what kind of tornado comes in town, we know how to persevere because greater is he that's in us call and the response and Jesus is calling today he, he's calling somebody who's in a dark space he's calling someone who, who's in a position of their life where they're out of position he's calling you to not only repentance to turn your life around but come unto me that I might give you a new life He's calling. Will you respond? Let us stand to our feet. I, I got a simple request today, simple request for the invitation, simple request. She said in verse 16 that I am his and he is mine. If you know that 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 Christ is your Savior.